1: WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, an artist's story of resilience. In 1984, Def Leopard drummer Rick Allen lost his left arm in a tragic car accident, but that did not stop him from playing. He's been performing with Def Leppard for more than 40 years. And in addition to his musical talent, Rick Allen is also a visual artist. Later in the hour, he'll tell us how his abstract artwork is built from rhythm. First, a woman named Vincent is at the center of Half-Blown Rose the latest novel by Lisa Cross Smith. The author joins us now via Zoom to tell us about the protagonist named after Van Gogh and her life-changing story. Lisa, welcome back to City Lights.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. When we
1: meet Vincent, she is living in Paris, teaching a class at a modern art museum. What was the horrible situation Vincent experienced that made her want to flee home?
2: Right, horrible is a really good word for that. Um, The man she'd been married to for 25 years, his name was Killian. Um, he's a writer, and he wrote a best-selling novel, um, R Slash. He doesn't quite want to say whether it's all true or not, but um, divulging secrets that he's kept from her their entire marriage. And so she reads it and decides that she's going to leave him, at least for now, and she doesn't want to see him for a year. So she leaves and goes to Paris.
1: And I have to say that reading Vincent's account, being with Vincent as she learns what she does in her husband's so-called autobiographical novel, auto fiction is grueling to think that she knew someone for 25 years, they had two children, adored him, shared their life, and could not have known about this, and to learn about it, along with the rest of the reading public,
2: it's staggering. How how did that idea come to you? yeah I, I knew I wanted um her to leave for a really horrible specific reason and I, I didn't want him to have cheated on her and, and that way it wasn't that he had an affair I just I just really wanted to think like what is something absolutely terrible that someone could do to like just ultimately really just betray her trust so much that she has to get as far as she can away from him and and I really I can't say exactly where that idea came from but it came to me pretty quickly and I'm like you know I'm a writer too so I'm like wouldn't that be terrible like wouldn't that just be awful like I'm laughing about it now because I've made it up and it's so terrible but wouldn't it just be terrible and she would have (laughs) no choice really
1: (laughs) oh wow Killian Vincent's husband is Irish a Very successful writer and has literary acclaim along with his popular success. His fourth book is Half Blown Rose. What's the significance of the title?
2: Yeah, so it's a book within a book, at least in the first section. We have, I've included snippets of Killian's work in there so the reader can actually see what was making her so angry. So Half-Blown Rose is something that's really special to Vincent. She has a a little tattoo on her shoulder that says Half-Blown Rose. I took the title from Jane Eyre. It's been used before in a couple of poems, but it was significant to me because of Jane Eyre, which is one of my favorite books. And in it, Charlotte Bronte writes, he gathered a half-blown rose, the first on the bush, and offered it to me. And I just thought it was so beautiful the first time I was listening to it, the audiobook, book. Um, my feet stopped when I came to that part because I just loved listening to the words half blown rose. Mm-hmm. So he's taken that phrase from her and decided to name his book that too, on top of also divulging the secrets in the book. So what I, I love so much about using the title that's just so beautiful to me, but also because of the meaning behind it, a half blown rose in between a bud or a full blown rose something on the cusp of something else, something that's going to turn into something else. And I talk often about liminal spaces, spaces that aren't meant to last, and half-blown rose is not meant to stay half-blown. It's going to turn into something else. And so the entire book is really written around that theme in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of flowers in the book. I love flowers. You and I have talked about flowers before, but... Yeah, I just really loved the word, and it really, I loved the words, and it bloomed out from there, for lack of a better way of saying it. Also, a lot of ideas started to come together just from that phrase.
1: Killian's autofictional name for Vincent is Picasso, Pica for short. How does Killian's description of Pica reveal more to us, reveal more to the reader about the character of Vincent.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, and slash terrible since you know, since we're talking about you know how horrible these things are for Vincent to experience. But she's sitting there and reading his version of her. She is called Picasso in his version of events. And and so she's seeing the things that he thought that he hasn't always told her. So the moment he sees her for the very first time in the library, when they meet, when they're in college, how he felt about her then, how he felt as they grew from being friends to becoming lovers. So she is seeing the way he thought about her and it's not, you know, it's all of that. It's all of his feelings. So it's not like it's all negative. It's not like it's all positive, but things he wouldn't necessarily have said um, out loud. There's a moment where he I'm thinking he says something like she's smarter than he is, Um, something that he wouldn't have ever said out loud to her, but he's, he's feels okay writing it down. It's those little secrets that he wouldn't have necessarily wanted her to know, but now he has no problem, you know, letting the whole world along with her know, and it's an an ultimate act of betrayal. He does a lot, it's a lot of little betrayals in, in the book really. Can
1: you talk about the biggest part of that betrayal that's revealed, or is that a spoiler? I've seen it in publicity for the book, even on the jacket.
2: Yes, yes, I feel comfortable saying that, yeah. So the the biggest secret in there is that he may or may not had a child with a young woman back in Dublin when he was a teenager, with another teenager, so... He doesn't want to fully commit to it in the book. But once Vincent reads that, of course, they have a discussion about that before she before she decides to go to Paris. But yeah, a huge, huge secret is that he is, you know, potentially had another child and the child is back in Dublin with their Irish mother. And he is now living in America and has been for, you know, since he was a teenager. So he kind of just forgot to tell Vincent that part. Forgot. (laughs) Yeah, just a little forgot, yeah. Vincent
1: comes from privilege. Her parents are successful artists who own a beautiful apartment in Paris where she stays. Would you tell us more about Vincent's family?
2: Yeah, i was so excited to write about a super privileged Black woman who really can spend her days doing whatever she wants. She makes jewelry. She has plenty of money. Um, her parents have amassed a pretty large fortune. So she's really privileged and can do whatever she wants. I mentioned it a couple of times in the book that Vincent is a flaneuse, which is the female version of a flâneur, which is um, a person who can kind of just loaf around all day and walk around all day. She is super, super privileged. And that was just fun for me because what a dream, right? So I made her parents <laughs> artists and she's she's an artist and she's named after Mango. And it, it just works like magic that her parents have this beautiful apartment in Paris that they're not using right now because they're traveling so much. So I was doing that to cushion her really so that she can spend all of her free time in Paris walking around eating chocolate bread. And so that she can have a lot of time to, to spend with a young man that she that she meets and catches his eye. But yeah, I just really loved writing about Black artists, about the Black upper class, and, and just a woman who really can hang out all day. I needed her to hang out all day so I could get the things done in the book that I needed to get done.
1: Well, they may be financially well-off, but her parents are still artists at heart, they're living in Rome, they don't like to stay put in one place too often, and they have unusual name choices for their children. Would you tell us about Vincent's brother and sister?
2: Right, so there are three children and the oldest is Theo and 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 there's Vincent and there's Monet so Vincent and Theo are named (laughs) after Vincent Van Gogh and Vincent Van Gogh's brother and then Monet another artist so yeah so early on whenever this young man in the book named Blue asked her about that she says her siblings names and he's like wow your parents love a theme and she's like yes they do so
1: Lisa you have Vincent fully embrace many of the positive received ideas we have about Paris. The beauty and romance of the city, the French men and women's sense of style, even smoking. There are so many Galois cigarettes in this book. I found myself worried that you, Lisa Cross-Smith, might be a smoker. No. (laughs) Good. No, but... (laughs) Yeah, it's clear you love writing about Paris and the Galois every other moment is a part of the backdrop.
2: Yeah, it really fit my idea of Paris when I wrote the book. We had just returned, and it was—it's a really smoky city. Um, but I—but <laughs> I use that. But I really do use that positively. I'm not—not not, not at all. Uh, you know, I'm brushing away the the health terrors of smoking. But in terms of uh, Parisians taking their time to sit outside and drink coffee and smoke a cigarette in the middle of the day, that part of it is inspiring. That they're taking the time for themselves. Although obviously we could make healthier choices. But in my book, I don't have to worry about that. They can smoke as much. <laughs> what there you want? go what does
1: this setting paris enable vincent to discover about herself that's a beautiful
2: question and i really thought and do think so much about her indulging without guilt paris makes it easier for her to be so far away completely immersed in another city and all new friends and different music and different food. And, and she's seeing everything differently now. And so that alone really helps her forget what, you know, a lot of the time or as much as she wants it to, as much as she can forget what killing has done. So giving her that distance and putting her in this beautiful spot where she's trying to figure out what she wants to do with the rest of her life as a woman in her forties, who begins an affair with a young man who's the same age as her son. He's in his twenties, but so she really does stretch out and enjoy herself. All the aspects of it really good and bad, I want to say, and indulging herself with food. And like you mentioned, with cigarettes and sex and letting herself do that without guilt, which is what I want to say again. Um, she really kind of pushes that stuff aside and is like, let me see how it makes me feel when I do X, Y, and Z, and then I'll circle back to those feelings later.
1: Mm. Author Lisa Cross Smith. We'll return with more of our conversation about her new book, Half-Blown Rose, after a short break, Amplifying Atlanta. This is W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just joining us, my guest today is the author Lisa Cross Smith, and we've been discussing her new book, Half Blown Rose. The story centers around Vincent, a woman remaking her life. After her husband's betrayal leads her to a year of travel, art, and passion in Paris. Here, the author describes circumstances surrounding Vincent's relationship with a much younger man.
2: Really, at first, she is rejecting it as much as possible. So she goes there and she goes to Paris in the summer, and it's not until October that they She actually even goes out for coffee with him with someone else along. And it's not until October until he comes back to her apartment. So she really rejects it, something she feels instantly from the moment she sees him in his little short shorts in her classroom, but but she is really rejecting it. She's not there to have an affair. She's She is still married. She is still trying to figure out what's going on. She doesn't need a man. She's very independent. She's not looking for that in any way, but there it is. So now what, right? So she really lets that bloom when we're talking about the half Rose and blooming. It just slowly blooms. The relationship slowly blooms. She's so against it at first that she's like, look, don't even call me." me Vincent. Call me Miss Wilde. Her name is Vincent Wilde. And she's like, I don't want you being this close to me or attempting to be this close to me. But he kind of weasels his way into her apartment because she's having a dinner party. Her, she and her friends have rotating dinner parties. And he says, Jeff, I'm hungry. <laughs> so she's like, OK, I'll feed you. I don't want you going hungry. And then there are things I don't want to spoil people. But then there are things that force them into this more intense intimacy when they're there at her apartment. But so it, it really does start. She really is trying to resist it. It just doesn't work. And then once she starts leaning into it, that's when we have the stuff without guilt. At first, she really does have it. She does have some hesitation. But his shorts get shorter. He's very handsome. His hair is very pretty. He really, really likes her. And she just finds all of that irresistible right now. And reassuring, reaffirming. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Although Killian, her husband, still loves and adores her. One wonders why he hadn't thought that the book, <laughs> that telling her about the book and what it contained, was a part of that love. But
2: it's complicated. I, I agree. I do think it's complicated, and I and I believe that the reader will find it's complicated too. Because um, we talk often about likable and unlikable characters in fiction, and and while I can totally hear someone who thinks that Killian is unlikable in what he's chosen to do. I mean, you know, it was nasty. It was, it was wrong. He was 100% wrong, but, um, she does love him. He is a person. She does know him. She does feel like she knows him. She feels like, obviously he's, you know, the this, this shadow of this huge lie he's kept from her, their whole relationship, but she does have her moments where she loves him. And so he sends flowers to her every Saturday and Killian's, He's an interruption to her life over there. She has told him, do not come over here and try to find me. So we have that done. Do not try to you know, surprise me that I don't find that romantic. But he is texting, he is calling, he is sending flowers, not harassing her, but in a very gentle way that he knows that she will always sort of leave the door open for him. So through the course of the book, we're trying to see what she's going to decide. But in the first section, when I've included snippets of his book, his Half-Blown Rose in that section, it's always occurring at points where it's an interruption. So right when she's feeling like things are revving up with with her relationship with Lou, well, you know, here's another section from Killian, or here's a text from Killian, or Killian has sent flowers. So he is interrupting, what she is trying to do over there. And, and I can understand a reader feeling like, you know, what a jerk. We hate him. But also he is a real person, too. And as you read his version of Half-Blown Rose, I feel like you can feel for him, too. He was a teenager. You know, what is he supposed to do if his parents are snatching him away from Dublin and bringing him to California? What is he supposed to do? You know, he was a child.
1: Your book brings out they are both loving, devoted parents with good relationships with her kids, and Killian has not written anything unkind. Everything he has addressed about their children in his half-blown rose is loving.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: Would you talk about the assignments Vincent gives her students?
2: Yeah, so Vincent teaches a couple classes at the Modern Art Museum. She teaches journaling and she teaches another class on creativity and memory and then a jewelry making class. And And so I've included a, a lot of the prompts from her class for her color class and her memories class. And for the memories part, in, in terms of creativity, the idea of some of those exercises are things that I actually did in my theater class where we would try to remember Every memory we had, it was really an assignment just to write down any memory. It could be the most basic thing, like one day you got a sandwich and it was good, or it could be some huge, you know, happy memory or some tragic memory. And so so I've included the prompts in there where people are just talking about colors, the colors they love, the colors they see on their walk to class, or memories, any memories they have, and then they mine those memories and they mine those um, color prompts to um, help with their own, so if they're working in their journal or they're working on painting something. And so I include those in the book. And I also include some of her students responses to those Mm -hmm. because inside of the book, I have snippets of Killian's journal. I also have soundtracks and menus and prompts from her classes. So I've tried to include a lot of different things like that to make the book even more immersive so that the reader can actually hear and smell and join her classes um, and taste the food and see the sights that she's seeing. So I really wanted it to be as immersive an experience as I could. Yeah.
1: And what a a lovely way to get to know someone, as Tully, a character, tells Vincent. What a lovely way to get to know someone by listening to their color connections and memories. Color and the importance of color is a uh, recurring theme in your writing, Lisa, And the vivid colors of flowers and the paintings we see. Of course, Van Gogh himself dominate this book especially. I know with my first encounter with synesthesia, with the word, was through music, through a composer who would hear color, as he put it, with his music. And then when I was talking about this, my daughter was very young, and she told me she associated colors with
2: words. Oh, wow, yeah.
1: Does color have that strong connection with words, with you know, the verbal understanding or your verbal processing?
2: not, maybe not in such a strong way all the time, but I definitely have my moments and I can't divorce color from my creative writing you know, from my creative writing process. So in a way I do. (laughs) That would be my short answer. Yeah. I I definitely will assign colors to people or characters in my book. And I I do that quite often. And it was really easy for me to have Vincent dig into color. And so when you mentioned Tully, which is the character um, of Killian's son, Tully, who, um, and this also is not a huge spoiler, but um, Vincent starts emailing Tully and they begin a relationship over email. And, and that's the way she kind of gets in with him. She explains that she teaches a class on, on color and she just kind of asked him his color memories and they just sort of talk and their relationship really blooms from there too. But you're right. It is, you know, you can ask someone a question like that. And if they're a person who is open to answering a question like that, you can really learn a lot about them. And it's really beautiful to listen and, and to meet people there with their own experiences. Hmm. Lisa,
1: Half-Blown Rose contains love letters from you to Paris, to visual art, to film, to music. And during a trip to England within the book, a love letter to the literature of the Brontes and Jane Austen, would you talk about writing this section of the book?
2: Yeah, I just love them. They're my favorites. The Bronte's and Jane Austen are just some of my favorite women who have ever lived and they inspire me really um every day. I actually took that trip on purpose to go um, see where Jane Austen lived and worked and and then I'm pl- I was planning on going to the Bronte Parsonage before COVID. So I'm hoping to get there soon. But yeah, that was also just a really easy thing for me. I just, you know, being so inspired by Jane Eyre to title it Half Blown Rose and just to explore those. It's super, super intense romantic relationships in their work really inspired me with, you know, Catherine Heathcliff and Lizzie Bennett and Mr. Darcy. I just really wanted to explore the same things they did, but in a different way. Just this intense passionate love and this idea of women really wanting to start out on their own and and find out who they really are. And these really complicated, strong, intelligent women that they write over and over again. I'm just always inspired by them. I just love them. They're my favorites.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the various immersive aspects of this book. Your book contains playlists, text messages, journal entries, excerpts from Killian's book, that sets off the plot. There are also descriptions which appear to be from a movie script at different points in the story.
2: Please tell us about that. I was really inspired by French cinema in writing this book, and I just gave those feelings to Vincent. So because she's in this completely different world for her it's so different from her regular life I I really just gave her this idea that she would sometimes feel like she was in a movie the same way we can listen to a certain song in our earbuds and it makes us feel like we're in a movie or the main character in a show I did that for her several times throughout the book so there's a moment where she's um, so Lou is in a band an electronic band called Anchois and she starts going to listen to his band play and one one night afterwards, she's standing outside and he walks out and it kind of like is a slow motion moment. And she hears killing me softly, like in her head and the wind is blowing through his hair. And I just sort of stop there. It's just like two or three lines. So that seems like it's sort of from a screenplay. I've written it in that same form because that's what happens when I watch a movie and that's what happens in French cinema. It's just these teeny tiny moments like, oh, here he is. And then the music swells. I was really influenced by French cinema and doing that in just movies anyway. So I really wanted to actually include that on the page. Um, the book isn't quite metafiction, but it is really aware of itself. It's aware that it's a book. It's aware that it's a novel or a work of fiction. And so those things to me were just winks to the reader. Like this is a book you're reading. And now she's kind of imagining herself being in a movie and she watches those same movies, leaves those movies on while she's sleeping. So she can absorb more of the French language and immerse herself in the French language. So it was just a thing that I wanted to do for fun and makes the book feel like a work of art for me and, and I hope that it also makes the reader feel like they're immersed in a, in a true work of art from a lot of different mediums. Although it's it's black ink on a white page, but taking us to a lot of different places through that.
1: Half Blown Rose has three parts. The first is titled Vincent and Killian. Part two is Vincent and Lou or Vincent et Lou. Part three is a woman called Vincent. How has she emerged as the sole occupant of that title?
2: Yeah, when I started it out, like I was mentioning before, it really was like a, the first section is a lot of interruptions from Killian. She's still trying to get her footing in, in Paris. She's over there, but you know, she's always thinking about that book. She's always thinking about Killian. And then we have the second section where she's really leaning into her feelings for Lou. And, and, and this something that she thought could be like a just a little crush or just a little fling is blooming into something else. So what does that look like? But then at the end, it really is about a woman called Vincent. It's what the book is about. It's her story. It's her version of events. It's her half-blown rose. Killian has written his half-blown rose. And this is hers. And so that was really important for me to have her take all that back. It's not about a man. It's not about anyone else. It's about her. It's about her and her choices. And now she she is finally going to do that. She has raised her children. She either is or isn't going to stay in this marriage with Killian and she is going to be okay regardless of what decision she ends up making or what else happens to her she can handle it and she really is a woman called Vincent he um, it's it's a, a specific phrase that Lou says to her early on he's like wow your name is Vincent Vincent a woman called Vincent but that's what she that's who she is she is a woman called Vincent and this is her story although she does have a like you know a wild cast of characters that make their make an entrance and exit but this is her book this is her story
1: Author Lisa Cross-Smith. More information about her new book, Half-Blown Rose, is on our website, wabe.orgslash slash citylights. Lisa Cross-Smith will be in conversation with Gail O'Neill at the Atlanta History Center's Midtown Campus on June 13th. Coming up... Death Leopard drummer Rick Allen shares how he creates visual art through rhythm. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on W.A.B.E., I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for being here. In 2019, the popular British heavy metal band, Def Leppard, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. During their acceptance speech, lead singer Joe Elliott acknowledged the resiliency of drummer Rick Allen. In 1984, Rick lost his left arm in a tragic car accident, but that did not stop him from playing. Rick has been performing with Deaf Leopard for more than 40 years. In addition to his musical talent, Rick is also a visual artist. In fact, his abstract artwork is built from rhythm. When we spoke ahead of his art opening at the Wentworth Gallery in Phipps Plaza last December, Alan described his musical journey. I
0: started pretty, pretty early on. My parents were huge uh, music fans, so there was always uh, very diverse types of music playing in the home, from big band to popular music, to rock music, to classical music, you name it. It was all there. I remember around about uh, the age of, I must have been about nine, my best friend, he got a guitar for Christmas. I was quite envious, so I went home and asked my parents if I could get a drum kit. And of course, the answer was no, because we, we couldn't really afford it. But about a week later, they came back around and they started saying, well, you know, if you go for drum lessons, then at least if we do get you a drum kit, then, you know, you'll have a basic knowledge of the instrument. So you're not going to lose interest. So I ended up getting a drum kit on layaway, helping out around the neighborhood, around the house and uh, making a bit of extra money. It was fantastic. I, I was able to get a drum kit. And sure enough, you know, I had had a basic knowledge of the instrument. So uh, that was kind of the beginning of the whole thing.
1: And am I correct? You were 15 when you began playing with Def Leppard?
0: That's right. I'd been playing with local bands, playing cover songs, playing other people's songs for quite a few years. And then at the ripe old age of 14... I started getting restless and I was looking for something else. It just so happened there was an article in the newspaper, the local newspaper called, and it, the heading was Leopard loses skins. So uh, I managed to get in touch with the journalist, and um, he gave me the information for uh, Joe, uh, Joe Elliott. A couple of days later, I met up with Joe and Steve at a a local sort of hangout and realized that we'd experienced all the same concerts and probably rubbed shoulders at those same concerts. So there was sort of this common interest in music. And then a few days after that, I went for an audition. Unfortunately, the old drummer came back. He wanted his job back. But... There was me and the original drummer and then one other guy. We decided that I would play last, which was good strategy because I was able to learn the songs even better. And then uh, when I got up to play, there were smiles all around the room. And um, I joined Def Leppard uh, around about my uh, 15th birthday.
1: Oh, amazing. I love that punny Headline that you saw about uh. Def Leopard loses skins—that <laughs> that's prize-worthy. <laughs> Your comeback after this tragic accident is well known, and part of what's been inspiring for so many people. How did you learn to play again with one arm?
0: It was less about relearning and more about rechanneling information that was already in my head. It seemed as though, you know, when I got back on my feet, there was a little bit of information from my left hand that went to, you know, the three limbs that were left. So it almost seemed like some sort of ancient response that allowed me to express myself Yeah, I found that I, you know, I was always a soccer player when I was a kid and I was always very right footed. But then after the accident, as if by magic, I was able to kick with my left foot almost as well as my right. So that led me to believe that there was something more going on in my brain in in terms of neural activity than I, I was aware of. So, for this wonderful reason, I was able to actually play quite proficiently without really learning anything. Yeah, the the learning curve took over, you know, a few years after that initial response, and then I was able to take my knowledge of three limb drumming to to another level. But that was that was a more conscious effort.
1: Oh, what's fascinating about the neurological memory or whatever neurons were left so your left arm which you lost that was your dominant arm? No it wasn't it wasn't dominant
0: but the other three limbs seemed to naturally pick up sort of the essence of what my left arm used to do so there was a little bit of that essence in the three limbs that were left over.
1: Amazing now I am intrigued with how you began your abstract artwork with a rhythmic bassist. I know there are mixed metaphors. I know that visual artists often talk about harmony or, you know, art historians mention harmony. The painter Kandinsky, a lot of musical terms are attributed to his style and his work. How did the rhythm and your drumming manifest itself in your painting?
0: It actually started out as a long exposure photography. What we would do is we'd set the camera up in a dark room And then I would sit behind the drum kit with a stick that lit up. So uh, every time I hit one of the drums or one of the cymbals, the stick had these LED lights inside the stick. So the sticks would glow. And obviously with a long exposure photograph, that would excite the whole idea of being able to paint in midair. Yeah, we came up with these incredible Images and in many cases the imagery it had some sort of relationship to some of the songs that I chose to play, which at the time were uh, were Def Leppard songs. It was interesting to see how an intention could manifest in a photograph. And then what I would do, I would take those images and I would print those onto canvas and then further enhance. The imagery that we discovered. Oh,
1: wow! You, in fact, had been a photographer for many years before you took up painting.
0: Correct. It was more about, you know, just being being a kid at school and being able to immerse myself in painting. I think I got more paint on the floor and the ceiling than anywhere else. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the activity. It, it just sort of, it just engulfed me. It was, it was something where I was completely in the moment with it. And then I think round about the age of seven, my grandfather bought me my first camera. And I took up photography and started to uh, experiment with man- manipulating light. And then, of course, it's well documented that, you know, I, I joined Def Leppard at the age of 15. So then, you know, music kind of consumed me at that point. You know, I still kept going with my photography and, and just abstract art in general. But it wasn't really until my youngest daughter was born 11 years ago. And it wasn't long before we discovered painting together. Yeah, which which was really, it was really nice because it kind of reignited my passion for art. And it was a great thing that we could do together to connect. Also, we found it very therapeutic or I found it very therapeutic for myself. You know, uh, not too many people know this, but I I suffer with uh, PTSD. And, and I find that music and art are actually really uh, healing, very uh, therapeutic activities.
1: Is the PTSD connected to the accident?
0: Yeah, it was, um, it was very traumatic. In fact, I rolled my car and um, the seatbelt came undone. And it was actually the seatbelt that took my arm. And I, as the car rolled, I left through the sunroof and landed sort of 150 yards away in a field. And the thing that actually saved my life was the fact that I didn't go unconscious. I, I remained conscious, even though it was hazy. I think the fact that my body tensed was the thing that, you know, allowed me to survive.
1: Well, I guess remaining conscious, though, is what imprinted the horror of it that is at the basis of the PTSD. How wonderful that the art worth your daughter has been so therapeutic. Can you tell us about the various series that are on display at the Wentworth Gallery here in Atlanta?
0: Yeah, the you know i come up with new names depending on the time that we find ourselves in i did a piece a long time ago called wings of hope i just felt like it was very fitting we're in this this terrible situation with this worldwide pandemic and i feel you know wings of hope is something that we we all need at the moment we all need something to look forward to hopefully you know, with that in mind, we can, uh, we can somehow put this behind us in the not-too-distant future. And then in Amongst uh, Wings of Hope, I've been doing the Legends series, which is uh, paintings of people that really inspired me through the years. Musicians, singers, drummers, you name it. But unfortunately, people that aren't with us anymore, people that, uh, you know, that are past. But the fact still remains, you know, these incredible, incredible artists inspired me probably to the point where I wouldn't necessarily be doing what I'm doing today. If it wasn't for the likes of Jimi Hendrix or John Lennon or, you know, just all these incredible if you if you know, if you go to um, Wentworth dot com you're able to see more of the legends that I've painted over over a long period of time. Uh, Janice Joplin is another one. Johnny Cash is another one. I mean, all these incredible, incredible artists. And, you know, they're all responsible for me, you know, doing what I do today.
1: I noticed there's a mix of different religious icons, angels, images of Buddha, what do these signify
0: for you? Uh, really, just life experience and experiencing different points of view. You know, I spent a long time in India. I went like four times in four years. I spent my time working with the uh, monks in an ashram uh, down there. You know, I didn't particularly like everything that I saw about myself. But as I say, you know, that's part of the totality of the human condition. Uh, There is good and bad. We have, you know, potential to be our absolute best expression, but we also have the potential to show our worst expression. I think all these different belief systems, they inherently have, you know, they have everything. They have the good and they have the bad. So it's my attempt at really understanding and experiencing uh, different points of view and bringing that into my own life experience. Do you consider yourself spiritual? Yes. I love the community of church. I'd love to be able to experience that with my family. But I find that sometimes... Religion doesn't necessarily teach the idea of it being an inside job. You know, the idea that they kind of tell you to get in the boat and Mm -hmm. instead of getting in the boat and sort of, you know, rowing to the other side of the of the river or whatever the, the metaphor is, you know, you sort of stay in the boat and stay in the middle of the river, which which is great. But I think I think it runs deeper than that. I think there's a lot more to us as human beings and our spirituality than meets the eye. So that is one of the reasons why I think it's an inside job. I think it's, it's something that is at a certain point we're on our own, you know?
1: Yeah. Another image that intrigued me in looking over your artwork was... The handprint. What can you tell us about that? Is it your hand?
0: It is my hand. Early on in my, uh, my hospital stay, I got a really bad infection in my right arm, uh, which is the, the arm that, was, that I, I was able to uh, ultimately keep. But the infection got so bad that there was actually a chance that I might lose my right arm oh. because I, I broke it so badly. We had to wait for the infection to clear up before we could heal the, any of the, the breaks in, in the bone. So, you know, I, I, I was just really brave. I, I said to the nurse, I said, you know, don't worry about the pain. I said, let's just really let's get this, you know, this infection cleared up. Just do what you need to do to try to make that happen. So between us, you know, we, we we really worked on that every single day. You know, thank goodness I was able to keep my right arm. But what came out of that was this immense feeling of gratitude that I was able to uh, keep my arm and I was still able to express myself, uh, whether that be musically or in an artistic way or just, you know, basic things that I needed to, to live my life. So there's this sense of gratitude when I wake up where I'm just really thankful that, that I was able to, to keep my right arm.
1: Hence the handprint in your painting. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, you and your wife, Lauren Monroe, I read you created a nonprofit organization, the Raven Drum Foundation.
0: That's right.
1: What sort of programs does the foundation offer?
0: Well, it's changed. We we work with different uh, demographics, or we have over the years. It's basically anybody that's experienced some sort of extreme trauma, you know, that may be suffering from PTSD or from TBI. You know a lot of people associate trauma with combat but in reality there are lots of parts of the population that are traumatized whether that be car accidents sports injuries abusive uh, relationships alcoholic parents just all kinds of ways as human beings that we can be traumatized so through the years we work with many different parts of the population whether that was you know, incarcerated youth or women's shelters. We tried to help as many people as we could. But then in 2006, I visited uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center in the DC area. It really opened my eyes to the amount of trauma and suffering that was going on because of combat and war, basically. It was a wonderful meeting because, you know, they all felt as though they knew me because of my celebrity. So there was a trust. There was a mutual trust. And they were really inspired by me. But what they didn't realize is how much I was inspired by them. So when I got back to my hotel, I called my wife and I said, you know, it it would be really nice if we could refocus and really focus on the plight of our veterans or our wounded warriors. And that's really when we we concentrated more on what was going on at the time. And that was trauma from combat.
1: Rick Allen, I think you ennoble us all. Thank you so very much for sharing your experiences, for talking about your art. And I saw that Def Leopard's first stop of the 2022 tour will be in Atlanta. How cool is that? That is very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're told this often, probably all the time, but you are truly amazing. And I thank you for letting us
0: share this part of your life. That's fantastic. Well, I am a work in progress, but, uh, you know, we're getting there. (laughs) Very much appreciate it. Thank you, darling.
1: Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and visual artist Rick Allen from our December 2021 conversation. Rick Allen and Def Leppard headline Truist Park next Thursday, June 16th. Also on the bill. Motley Crew, Poison, and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., conductor and longtime ASO music director Robert Spano reflects on his upcoming final performances with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. City Lights' senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Wright's Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.